Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. And hello, this is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, September 29th, 2016. Tonight, we expect to have our guest, uh, North Carolina attorney James Serene, talk about foreclosure defense strategies, title, and his view of foreclosure defense in the mid-Atlantic states. Um, I had the pleasure of speaking with him on a case where I am consulting, and I was impressed. So I asked him to be the guest tonight, and he graciously accepted I uh, think there's a, some technical problems in getting in, and uh, I hope that he is able to join us shortly. I'm broadcasting live <clears throat> from Broward County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm, with offices in South Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners just like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call 202-838-6345, which is our main new main number. And I'm getting a message here. Uh, 704, right. Okay. And uh, pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you, if the blog has value for you, then please make a contribution to, he- to help us continue helping you and all consumers. So while we're waiting for Mr. Serene to join us, oh, wait a minute. I'm just getting another message here that it might be a different area code. All right. I still don't see that. Oh, wait a minute. Jim, is that you? Yes, sir. Ah, I okay. I didn't realize you were tracking me through that 704 area code. I apologize. That's quite all right. Jim Serene practices in Cornelius, North Carolina, just a little bit north of Charlotte, and can be reached at 704-895-5885. His information is on the Living Lies blog post for today, and it is in the description 
on the web for this show on Blog Talk Radio. He's been a litigator for over 25 years and has tried hundreds of jury and bench trials. I always respect people who have done that because it's only the people who have done that that understand the intricacies and gray areas and innuendo that are in, that's involved in trial work and reading the judge and opposing counsel and all that. He also served as the manager of his firm's real estate closing department, closing on thousands of loans for his clients, and he'll be able to talk about some of his experience during that the run-up of the mortgage meltdown. He graduated cum laude from the uh, Whittier School of Law and was a member of the law review there, received his bachelor's degree from Louisiana State University, and got his degree in criminal justice from Grambling University. Jim, thanks for coming on as our guest tonight, and welcome. Thank you, Neil. So I guess the first question I want to ask you is your view of the judicial climate in connection with foreclosures in the great state of North Carolina. What are the judges and lawyers thinking there now? Well, I would say going back probably around 2008, 2009, it was was not bad. I think the judges were receptive to a lot of the common law arguments that we would raise relative to the the issues that the deeds of trust may have or other legal arguments that we could present, the, the, the judges were receptive. But as time has worn on, the foreclosures have slowed down quite a bit. Unfortunately, I would have to say that the judges become far less receptive. And unless you have something that is absolutely black and white under the letter of the law, and I would say that that applies to the Superior Court as well as the Court of Appeals, it's becoming more difficult to prevail in a foreclosure defense. Interesting. And yet you're, you have won many cases involving title and things like that. Yeah, a lot of times when we, when we win a case, that I guess is somewhat different than perhaps in a normal civil litigation sense to the extent that when you win a case, you either, you either absolve yourself of liability or you recover some monetary relief. In many of our cases, we consider a win or we secure a, a, a modification that's favorable to our client or we get a significant reduction in the outstanding principle. And in some cases, we get monetary relief for the client to just turn over the keys and, and walk away from the litigation. Right. So I note that, well, your approach is basically first things first, which is the same as mine and that you uh, think that the uh, title search and title analysis is the first step in foreclosure defense. Is that right? Yeah, correct. And the reason we were sort of drawn into this is over the years prior to 2008, we handled uh, as many or more closings in Mecklenburg County, North Carolina, than any other firm. We were doing as many as 100 a day towards the end of it every month for many, many years. So we, of course, had a lot of clients that we closed loans for, and then when they got into trouble in 8, 9, and 10 with their loans, they came back to us to see if we could be of any assistance. And we 
had a great deal of experience with respect to reviewing title. And oftentimes in a lot of the foreclosure cases that we handle, title is the easiest way to get a judge to dismiss a case or to gain leverage with a lender uh, to try to secure some favorable settlement. So you gave me a list, which I hope you have in front of you, but if you don't, I can read it off to you. Uh, of issues on which you ended up winning, like errors in legal descriptions and so forth. Can you take us through that? Sure. I think what we do when we get a file is, uh, outside of just getting the general information and whatever documents the client may have, um, we then commence a very, very thorough search of the title. So we'll abstract it all the way back to the plat in the case of a subdivision or if it's, a, if it's not in the subdivision, uh, it's a meets and bounds, we'll go back 30 years and then try to find errors in the chain of title that we can then present to the trustee who then presents it to the title insurance company and the whole process kind of shuts down in terms of the foreclosure. And what we found, in, especially in the busier times back a few years ago, when I say shut down, it would shut down for as long as a year or two before we hear anything from the lender. At some point, they would go in and get it corrected or try to get it corrected and resume the litigation, and that would eventually result in uh, mediated settlements for errors in the chain. So, for instance, when I say go back to the plat, we've had cases that we have prevailed in where the uh, developer would start conveying out lots prior to the recordation of the plat. I came across that a lot during the time that I was closing real estate loans, and we just sort of brought that over into foreclosure defense and started looking at that as a possible flaw in the chain of title. So we start with going back to the plat and reviewing the plat. Um, I, I can't think of another lawyer in the country that is, is being that thorough about title. Um, I, I commend you for it. And uh, uh, I, I have been involved in some cases and I've reviewed cases where that kind of analysis ends up throwing off the legal description and everything else because of the assumptions that people make as they go from one owner to the next. And if an error was committed 30 years ago, it's still an error today. Um, uh, people sometimes question me about, well, doesn't the statute of limitations cover that? What's your answer to that? No, it would not. It goes back. There's no statute of limitations as it would relate to an error, or especially with respect to a, a plat not being recorded prior to the outs, prior to the conveyance out of the deed. It just has to be fixed. And what the lenders are forced to do is either sit down at the table with us or engage in a reformation action in Superior Court, which is expensive and it's not always successful. So they're far more inclined once we discover an issue with respect to, like you said, uh, if that error occurred back in the chain two or three owners back many, many times, especially between, I would say, 92 and 2007 when things were just crazy with mortgages in terms of the volume, there were so many errors made, it's very fertile ground for us to just go in and examine that title so closely that we oftentimes, I would almost venture to say more often than not, find errors in the chain of title. 
and that gave you powerful leverage against them. It does. It shuts the process down at the clerk level, and then the trustees go back. And a few years back when things were crazy with the foreclosure in terms of volume, it just took them forever to get back up to their knees and then back up to their feet. And it gave our clients kind of, time to – I'm sorry, go ahead, Neil. What, what, yeah. Well, actually, one of the things I would just want to note on your uh, list, uh, something that I've seen several times, uh, including where foreclosure judgments were entered, is that both the mortgage and the assignments or one or the other was recorded in the wrong county. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, we just, uh, go ahead. We just recently had a case where that occurred. It was, it was sort of an anomaly, but the, the lender recorded the deed of trust, or the, I'm sorry, the closing attorney recorded the deed of trust in the wrong county. And our client actually showed up at the foreclosure and bid. There was, there was a small second uh, line of equity. So when he bid and got the bid substantially low, it was a seven-figure mortgage. The unbeknownst to the lender at the time that the bid was accepted, he ended up having to just pay off that second because the trustees deed wiped well his his was not a record my client was a good faith purchaser for value so he ended up buying the property by just taking out that that small second and so it was not so much it was a foreclosure defense that ended up with our client just doing something different than what we normally do but again that was through examination of the title you're obviously familiar with uh actions to quiet title and you're probably aware that around the internet, well, on the internet you can find anything, but on on the internet, uh, one of the things which unfortunately I contributed to at first uh, about ten years ago, I thought it might be kind of a magic bullet, and then as I started researching it, I changed my mind. Uh, do you do you see any kind of quiet title action that is likely to wipe out a mortgage? No, I, I don't see yeah. that happening. Uh, to wipe out a mortgage, I do not see that happening, especially with the sentiments of our current bench. Not that that's bad. That they're, we have some of the best judges, in my opinion, in Mecklenburg County in the state. In fact. In all the counties that I practice in, the judges are, are very, very well-reasoned, but not in a position to say I'm going to allow, or not in mindset to say I'm going to allow a homeowner to stay in a home without the benefit of paying or the obligation of paying his or her mortgage. And we will staunchly disagree with that position, arguing that in many instances our clients may have defaulted or may have been told to default so they could engage in the modification process and once you start foreclosure and the accelerated, the notes accelerated, the lenders won't accept payments. And then it becomes years in, our, in, in North Carolina. Years go by without our clients doing anything. In many instances, the lenders will start a foreclosure, go to the clerk level, get an order, and then on their own volition, take a voluntary dismissal several times over several years before they eventually pursue it and try to get the actual foreclosure. And that's generally when we're, we're brought into the picture. We've seen that, too, in Florida. Because the judge's sentiments are, you haven't paid in five years. I think the record case that we had was 11 years that our client hadn't paid, but 
it's not that the client hadn't paid, it's that the lenders, and, and oftentimes at a time the notes are actually endorsed and exchanged, so you have different lenders, but none of the lenders can or will accept payment during that, that period following the acceleration of the note. I've, I've come around to the view on the the whole issue of quiet title that unless you can make a real clear case that the mortgage was void for some reason, uh, that quiet title is not a remedy that will be granted to a, a homeowner. Would you agree with that? And in North Carolina, absolutely. I, I do seek declaratory relief on issues of law that we discover, whether it be through the chain of title as it relates to endorsements on the notes or I think more particularly with respect to issues that we find in the chain of title uh, in terms of the deeds, the deeds of trust, how they're executed, who executes them, uh, the legal descriptions. There are just a myriad of reasons why we find defects that result in dismissals of the foreclosure actions. So one of the things that I noticed on your list here was whether or not the legal description was attached at the time the deed of trust was signed. Could you talk a little bit about that? We had, when we do, when we started doing a lot of foreclosure defense, so we started to get to know quirks about different lenders, especially some of the smaller banks located around Mecklenburg County. One in particular was noted for closing their loans in their bank branches hundreds of loans in their bank branches, all of their loans, in fact, and then asking for title work after the loan had been closed. In North Carolina, there's a case in Ray Hudson that says if the deed of trust does not have a legal description at the time that it's executed, then it is not valid. And so in every case that we came across, not only with that bank, we started to discover other larger banks were actually doing it in Mecklenburg County. We began utilizing that as a defense that you, know, you can't close the loan have the client sign the deed of trust, and then send it off for title work and attach the legal description after days after the closing occurred. Well, that would make sense, actually, wouldn't it? The, uh, um, the addition of a legal description to which the, uh, uh, the signatory uh, had not seen and, and had not agreed uh, would be a void act, right? That's exactly right. In the, the fact that the legal description at the time of here in North Carolina, a deed of trust is actually a conveyance of an interest in the land. It it vests legal title in the trustee, and then the the owner of the property, so to speak, holds beneficial title until that deed of trust is paid off. So the way the court looked at it was, you didn't have a legal description. There was nothing conveyed at the time of execution, and therefore that that deed of trust is not enforceable. Yeah, here in Florida, we're judicial, and the uh, uh, mortgages used to be called mortgage deeds. Uh, now they're shifting over to referring to it as an encumbrance, uh, not necessarily the uh, the grant of title, uh, which would only come as uh, you know in the event of enforcement. Um, so. 
then there's another problem that happened in the run-up when you like what you say you were doing a hundred closings a day, and others were were also doing a lot. Um, the errors started to occur in the timing of the recording of documents in the chain of title. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. It, it's a very common occurrence and probably 70% of the time those are caught after the closing through underwriters reviewing um, documents that are sent for final title policies. But those that didn't get caught end up in a foreclosure. And what that means is that in North Carolina where you, you have to record your deed in front of your deed of trust so that you own the property such that you can actually grant a lien against the property that you recently purchased. And when you reverse those and you record the deed of trust first, then again, that deed of trust is, is found to be not, not enforceable. I hope yeah. our listening audience, especially the attorneys, are listening closely to what we're talking about here because we have, from the very beginning, emphasized that title should be uh, uh, reviewed going back at least two or three owners and that everybody should start off with a title report and a title analysis. And at first that was popular and now people are like skipping over that and I think they're skipping over uh, the the one thing, as you say, in, in a, uh, a state like North Carolina where the judges are not inclined to uh, give the uh, the homeowner relief, they're more inclined to give what they perceive as the bank relief. Uh, uh, the, the one thing that'll turn their head is if there's a basic error in, uh, in, in the chain of title. Um, so we have other things like errors in the spelling of the, the names and so forth. Uh, uh, I, I, I would assume well, let me ask you, have you actually won a case in, in where they misspelled the names of a grantor or grantee? Yeah, and when I say, like I said initially, when we win a case in an instance like that where there's an error in a chain, then what we do is we, we usually win at the clerk level, meaning the clerk denies the order of sale, and then the trustee will decide to regroup and not if they appeal, they'll take a voluntary dismissal and then come back at us after they go through a reformation act, action and get that corrected. In fact, I just had two of those last week. It took them six, seven months, maybe more, in those last two cases to get back to the table. Some of my clients are in a position where if they got six or seven months, they they might find alternative financing, uh, and so that's it's helpful to them. But those are not errors that are fatal to such to an extent that that would preclude the lender from taking a voluntary dismissal after the clerk hearing and losing and then coming back at you a, a month or a year or two years in some cases after that. But it certainly buys our clients time. And oftentimes when they come to us, unfortunately, it's two days before the clerk hearing. They waited to the last second. Uh, right. So we end up getting them, you know, a year or two years 
where they're at, and at least they get their lives squared away before they end up with the sheriff at their door. And you you raise another. I know what you're talking about, by the way. Uh, many people who call uh, my little enterprise here uh, call when it's essentially too late to do anything. Um, and you know, some of them uh, declare bankruptcy in order to uh, buy some time, but that does not buy a lot of time necessarily. Um, uh, although it can, if it's uh, intelligently done, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, the the issue you uh, you bring up on this list also is is interesting to me. Uh, you you raise the issue that that the the grantor's names must be in the body of the deed of trust and not just signed. So let's start first with talk a little bit about what you meant by that, and then I'll tell you why I'm interested. Well, we had a couple of cases with um, some, so there were, I would say, high net worth clients that had substantial mortgage um, amounts. And a lot of times what we find with those types of clients is they are treated like royalty such that they may go to a bank and you know, a bank will do a lot more or a lot less scrutiny-wise for those types of clients. And so the the thought of a wife signing a deed of trust is sort of an afterthought, and they'll bring her in, you know, even after the closing is done, she'll sign her name on the signatory line, but not she's not mentioned in the body of the document. Or, or in some instances, the lenders just leave off the wife's name, and I don't mean to sound gender-biased, but it's just more often than not it's the, um, the wife, because the husband is the primary or is the borrower, then what happens under North Carolina law, just like in a contract, when you read a deed of trust, it spells out the terms, the obligations, it identifies the parties and the definition sections. If if the wife or the husband is not identified as such in the body of the document, it was just a signature at the end, then our courts have found that that does not necessarily mean that that bound that signature to the terms of the document they signed. Especially that's kind of one. that's that's kind of the reverse of what we experienced, where basically, uh, well, not so much recently, but uh, it has been that uh, all the judge wanted to know is, did you sign it? And that's the end of it. And that uh, apparently in North Carolina under the uh, uh, non-judicial statute is not sufficient, and the courts are finding that. The other thing about that that is interesting to me is, and I wrote an article about that this week, um, in these assignments or so-called assignments, you find often two or three layers of attorneys in fact that are involved and it's phrased in such a way that you're not sure what party actually signed this document and what party is being identified as the grantor or uh, asinor of the document. And I'm wondering if in 
North Carolina, you've seen something like uh, uh, Aquin as attorney in fact for Chase, as attorney in fact for uh, uh, perhaps some trust or some other party or the original or the originator. And in, in my parsing of the words, I've come up with the conclusion, and I've actually had this work in court, where the, the absence of clarity as to the identity of the parties that are named in the body or who signed uh, becomes a key issue that essentially voids the document. Have you seen that? Um, we we're a little bit different in North Carolina to the extent that the courts here, because our statutes don't require an assignment to be recorded to make an endorsement effective. So our assignments that we'll pull off the chain of title generally are just disregarded by our judges and clerks because if someone has a note with whatever endorsements blank, specific, or launch, they that trumps any assignment to the point where it, it just completely moves the assignment, and they just look at the note. I do find what you're describing very often, more often than not, with respect to the substitution of trustees, where these lenders will appoint a uh, law firm to serve as their attorney in fact, and they'll file an attorney, power of attorney, uh, limited power of attorney in some county that we don't know where. There's no way to track it down from looking at the, the actual uh, substitution of trustee. And we get into that in the course of litigation where we, we ask the judge and we force them to produce many, many times we'll get a continuance and they'll have to come back and prove to the judge and the clerk or the clerk that they in fact had standing to substitute the trustee, which is a critical part of the chain in terms of establishing whether or not that foreclosure can go through. And, and therefore, that raises the question of whether or not a proper substitute trustee filed for the foreclosure. Correct. And we've won a lot of cases on the issue of substitution of trustees. As I'm sure you're used to, these folks, they, these notes get transferred around so often, especially when the foreclosure is forthcoming, and then the servicers get involved. And between them, they're shifting things around so often that the substitution of trustee gets substituted but before that, there's a notice of hearing sent out, which you hear is the same as filing of the, the lawsuit or the foreclosure. And right. only the, the trustee can have, that's the only entity that has standing to actually file the foreclosure hearing. And sometimes it's a, a dog and pony show to, to chase that around and try to figure out whether or not, and we've had a number of cases dis, uh, dismissed at the clerk's level because they had the wrong substitution of trust or the wrong substitute trustee initiating the action. And again, I hope our listeners from the, frankly, the majority of states that have non-judicial uh, uh, infrastructure from the statutes are listening to that because in my view, the first thing to challenge or to at least analyze, is whether or not 
the, substitu- the so-called substitution of trustee was valid. If it wasn't, and you can prove that it wasn't, which is easier than challenging the assignments and endorsements and all that, if you can prove that the substitution of a trustee on a deed of trust was invalid, you may well have a lot more leverage than any of the other defenses that you would raise subsequent to that point in time. Um, Jim, do you want to comment on that? I I fully agree. It's it's just very low-hanging fruit. It's easy for us to do. When you do get into you know the, the chain of title with respect to the endorsements, it's much more challenging for a judge or a clerk to digest that and and even let themselves agree. Oftentimes, whereas with these legal issues that we're discussing, they have no choice. Uh, we've we've taken many many cases to the court of appeals, uh, and ultimately, what happens with those cases is, especially when it's unless someone's trying to change the law, which rarely the case. It's just an error, and the best way to fix the error is for them to take a voluntary dismissal and start over. And I've told them you know, 50 times, instead of continue, continuing to belabor this error, just take your dismissal and refile. And, and again, it's just amazing over the years how some of these things would not get refiled for literally years after that occurred. It was It's the strangest thing, and I still don't understand it today, but I guess they just had such a volume of foreclosures, they just couldn't couldn't get it together. Well, get it I, there are, I, I think there are potentially other reasons as well because they, for, uh, instead of taking a risk on, on a loss, uh, since almost all foreclosures are uncontested, they might as well delay the ones that are contested so that they can get through hundreds of others. That, that, so, that could be your and we have a question from somebody. Let's see if it's on uh, area code four two three. What is your question? Five oh four. Apparently not. Okay. All right. So um, the uh, uh, I, I guess the next issue is. Uh, how, how do you advise your client in connection with these settlements and modifications? How do you value the, the, the settlement or the proposal for modification? And I guess the second question I have in relation to that on the title issue is if you have a real sincere doubt that this party that's enforcing or attempting to enforce the note and mortgage or deed of trust, it really is a stranger to the transaction, as several studies across the country have shown. What do you tell your client about entering into a modification that names some servicer as the party to be paid in the modification when you have a sincere belief that they probably have no right to collect it and they have no authority and no financial interest in the debt, the note, 
or the mortgage? I, I actually have given thought to that to the extent that are we creating standing that didn't occur prior to the modification through the modification? Um, exactly. I think in most instances, in the files that we handle, our folks are very, very happy to stay in their house, and if we can get them, our benchmark is usually 2%, and we extend the AM out to 40 years, it lowers their payments significantly, um, and they will either uh, discount or forgive the accrued interest. Some instances, we'll tack it on the back. It all depends on how much leverage we have with respect to um, the defense side of it. They're, they'll never, ever, in my experience, do anything gratuitous. If we don't have a viable defense, they just, they come at us even harder um, trying to mitigate, I guess, their fees because I've seen some of the bills that go back to the clients once we get up to the Court of Appeals level and they're north of $50,000. Oh, yeah. I don't. I think that we never would allow a servicer to engage our client with with a modification. We would ensure that it was the actual alleged holder. Um, and at the end of the day, if, if it's if the terms are such that our clients generally, when they get down that far down the road, their credit's not so good. It's very difficult for them to go back out and, and buy a house or even rent an apartment. And so all those things considered, sometimes it's best to get them into a, a favorable modification and let them you know, get their lives back together again. Right. Um, Oh, hold on for a second. There's another one here that's signaling us. Okay, area code 501, first three digits 612. What is your question? Hi. Um, I'm loving this show, Neil. Thank you. Um, I'm, I have a situation where I have a, um, a fraudulent assignment in that Fremont Financial was out of business in 2013, um, and the assignment that was filed didn't need to be filed, but it was filed in the state of Arkansas. Uh, notes that it's being assigned from Fremont via MERS, which can't assign in Arkansas, to U.S. Bank. And um, I, well, I, no need to, to dig too deep into the story. I won because it was filed past statute of limitations. I lost because it was reopened through some flim-flam. And I think I've got a case for wrongful foreclosure now, just based on that alone. Uh, it's you know, void, not voidable, all that. What I what I wanted to ask is, because it's it's almost impossible to find an attorney in that state, um, do you have any suggestions or could could anybody on the show possibly have an interest in this case or any suggestion as to how I could find somebody who could handle this kind of thing? In Arkansas. It's in Arkansas. Um, yeah. And there's a... A clear-cut Southwest Homes v. MERS case, which says MERS, you know, cannot make any assignments at all. Guy that won the case, and you'll find this interesting, he didn't even agree with it. He was working for a bank versus a bank, <laughs> and I talked to him already. But he's not really interested in my case. <laughs> so here I am. Oh, he's not He's not going to be. Um, well, um I could suggest to you that you contact uh, uh, Carol Malloy in Tennessee. She has uh, cross relationships with the people in Arkansas. Uh, okay. And that's 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 one possibility. Um, All right. 
Jim, you have anything to uh, comment on? Well, I, I, I hear his pain. I've dealt with many, many instances, just as he's describing. The unfortunately, being a North Carolina licensed attorney, I I can't opine on Arkansas law or what the situation may be there. I would just recommend that he find somebody that I think I think he may have already said he tried, but somebody that handles foreclosure defense. And probably, Neil, you're probably the best situated to provide that type of referral. Yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll absolutely um, not give up. <laughs> you can uh, – the, the other thing you can do is uh, you can contact our main number, uh, 202-838-6345, and see what, you know, what attorneys we've got online right now, and we might be able to network you to something. Hey, we'll do. If anybody okay. anybody wants to come there, I think I've got a good one. Thanks. Okay. So, um, well, that interrupted the question I was going to ask you, which I don't remember now. Um, <laughs> the the issues that uh, are confronting us in in foreclosure defense, basically. Uh, are highly technical, and um, I, I I understand. And actually, maybe his call was was just at the right time. The I tell everybody, don't try to do this yourself. You need a lawyer. But then they can't find a lawyer that's anywhere near there where, where they are. Um, I, I think because most lawyers just don't want to do the t- kind of title analysis that you do and and legal analysis and so forth that uh, that we do and i am wondering if uh what your view is of pro se litigation you know i see a lot of that and some of those folks are just fervently involved in their case and the law and the research to death. A lot of them try to take it up to federal court, which is really almost impossible for a pro se um, to succeed. What do I think about them doing? I, I agree with you. I don't see where if they were to go on the Internet to try to just base their defense off of you know holdership or who owns the note and whether the endorsements are correct, it's, it don't, that's not going to be well received by our judges and superior court here. I'm very, very eager to get a report from you on this recent case that we're working on. I, I, mean, I just can't wait to get in there and try that based on the discussions we have. I think that that might be the first time that I have a shot at going into the judges and showing them a real chain and a real history of these particular lenders that are involved and have some success with that, that would be I'd, I would be outstanding for a number of my existing clients. Well, that's what I hope to achieve. Well, believe it or not, we ran out of time. Um, <laughs> Jim Serene from just north of Charlotte, uh, thank you for joining us, and um, I hope to have you back to discuss the second step in foreclosure defense litigation. Uh, Thank you for, uh, for coming on.
Neil, thank you very, very much for the time and the opportunity. All right. And to everybody else, have a good weekend. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.